of the sky. Look. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Matt Spectro through the multiverse. Thank you for joining us for another exciting episode of Matt Spectro Through the Multiverse. I'm your host, Matt Spectro, lifetime comic fan, lifetime animation fan, lifetime superhero fan, and you are listening to the podcast that talks comic book animation. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to episode 45. Let me briefly explain the rules. Rule number one, it's comic book animation. Enough said. Rule number two, I'm a big fan of DC Comics Presents, Marvel Team-Up, Brave and the Bold, all the old team-up books. So this is a team-up podcast every week, me and a special guest, talking comic book animation. And rule number three, and most important, we got to have fun. Before we get into the topic, I'm going to bring my guest. He was previously on our Super Friends episode. He's my own flesh and blood. Please welcome back to the multiverse, my brother, Marcus. Hey, appreciate you inviting me back on. Good to see you, pal. Always a pleasure to have you back. This week, we're going to be talking the movie Heavy Metal. Now, this was actually your suggestion. You said you wanted to do something not superhero related. Right. Yeah, this was my idea. I didn't really want to cover... I mean, you do it every week, so I wanted just to come on if I had something different to talk about, and I thought this would be interesting because it's not superheroes, something completely different. All right, heavy metal. We're going back to August 7th, 1981. Uh, We were both extremely young. I do remember the commercials for this, and at the time, not understanding why it was a cartoon, why I couldn't see it. Yeah, I don't know if I remember commercials for it, but I do remember being aware of the magazine. I just remember growing up in the late 70s and early 80s being aware of these like adult science fiction comic magazines, like Epic Illustrated and Heavy Metal. And I was always intrigued with them, even though I didn't read them much. And yeah, I don't remember if I ever saw commercials or trailers for this movie. This was a comic book magazine. We're going to get into a little bit of the history of it. Uh, it was founded by a Leonard Mogul, who uh, apparently the had... In France, he had wanted to release a uh, European version of National Lampoon, and he stumbled across the magazine, which uh, in French is called uh, Metal Humlant, I believe is how you say it. Yeah, which is basically Howling Metal is the translation, yeah, they I said guess. that Howling Metal, sometimes they said it, some people translate it as Screaming Metal. He thought that would translate well to an American audience, so he started publishing Heavy Metal Magazine back in 1977. Now, it began, it was just a reprint of Metal Humlon, and eventually other artists and writers came along, and it became original material as well. It became very popular. In fact, the magazine still, uh, there was a time where I thought it had gone, but it actually is still around today. It's gone from different publisher to different publisher, but it is still being printed in 2022. Yeah, I I did read, we probably read some of the same stuff about it, but at first they did a lot of um, licensed translations of the, you know, the stuff from the French magazine before branching out. And they were, yeah, purchased by uh, Kevin Eastman at some point who created the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, and that's actually the, uh, that is the only reason that led to the soundtrack and VHS release. It took 15 years for either of those to happen. It didn't come out on VHS or Laserdisc until 1996. Yeah, I remember. I didn't remember the year, but I just remember it coming, finally coming out in the late 90s, I'm assuming that had to do with music rights? or Yeah, they had. it was the all the different music artists getting the rights to release it. Everybody lent their music, had to get paid a portion, and that's what delayed <clears throat> that release for until 1996. Columbia Pictures distributed the movie. It was a Canadian production where uh, several different Canadian uh, teams were working on it, which was kind of more common then because you're talking almost all hand-drawn. Guardian Trust Company and the Canadian Film Development worked on it. It mixed the techniques of hand-drawn animation with a rotoscope, which anyone doesn't know what a rotoscope is. It's not as much of a common practice today as where they take actual photography or moving pictures and they sort of trace over the animation to give it more of a photorealistic look. 
Yeah, and imagine we'll talk about that a little bit more after we watch it. But I certainly will be looking for that when we watch the episode. Probably most famous example was in the uh, the Ralph Bashke uh, Lord of the Rings movie from the 70s. That used a ton of rotoscope. But even Disney used some rotoscope in some of the old ones. Uh, Snow White actually has some examples of it. Uh, film was directed by Gerald uh, Potterton, produced by the late, well, Leonard Mogul and the late Ivan Reitman, who unfortunately just passed away pretty recently. Of Ghostbusters fame, among oh, other yeah. things. As well as uh, what, Meatballs and I think Stripes, Stripes I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, no longer with us. Uh, so it was a Canadian production. Had a budget of about uh, $9 million. Ended up grossing just over $20 million, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's actually made the movie profitable back in 1981. Um, in fact, for a year, it was the highest grossing Canadian film ever released. Wow. <laughs> which was... Uh, about a year later, was upstaged by Porky's of all things. Now the it's an anthology film, and it's a it's a mix of stories based on heavy metal stories and original material. I don't know if it was done intentionally, but the different animation companies working on it made every segment kind of more unique because it had its own animation style and some uh, very. Well, okay, maybe not very famous, but uh, Percy Rodriguez is uh, one of the voices. He was the voice of Lochnar. But Eugene Levy of American Pie and Schitt's Creek fame uh, does the voice of Captain Stern on this. Harold Ramis, the late great Harold Ramis, also of Ghostbusters fame, <laughs> as well as the director of uh, Groundhog's Day, and he was also in Stripes. He does a voice, the voice of Zeke. And also the late great John Candy does actually several voices in this. He's the desk sergeant, he's Den. He's also uh, one of the robots as well. Um, there's also, um, I couldn't find his name for some reason. He was the bad guy in I'm Gonna Get You Sucker. He was in uh, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. God, he's got such a distinct voice. And, and a distinct career. Uh, well, he was bigger in the 70s. Uh, he was in Animal House as well. Uh, former guest Francis Mackey would be livid that uh, I'm not remembering his name right now. Hold on, I'm going to find this. All right, yeah, but it's interesting. John Vernon. John Vernon. Oh, John Vernon, of course, yes. (laughs) I cannot remember his name. Yeah, it's interesting because this was a Canadian production, and I'm not sure how it came to be that all these, I guess because the Ivan Reitman thing, and a lot of these people were from SCTV from, you know, like Eugene Levy and John Candy. Joe Flaherty is also in this. So I'm going to not get into many details, but uh, some of the – the segments are names of them. Soft Landing uh, was based on the comic by Dan O'Bannon and uh, Thomas Workinkin, I believe is how you pronounce it. Sure. Anyone who listens to the show knows I'm, I'm great at uh, pronunciation. <laughs> uh, the story Harry Canyon was based on the comic book uh, The Long Tomorrow by Mobius, but then it was adapted by Daniel Goldberg and Len Bloom. Uh, Den, created by uh, Richard Coben. Captain Stern, created by the great Bernie Wrightson of uh, Swamp Thing fame. So Beautiful and Dangerous was written by, uh, the, based on the comic by Angus McKee. And uh, even though the Tarna, which is the, the most famous, Tarna was the girl riding the, uh, the giant bird thing. Right, she's on the poster. Yeah. yeah, even though it's an original story, it's based loosely on a comic book by uh, Arzak by Mobius as well. Plus uh, B-17 stories, an original, and I believe the, the Loch Ness story, which kind of is the glue that brings all the stories together, is also an original story for the movie. Have you seen this before, period, or even recently? I've never seen this. Oh, really? For some reason. <laughs> even though I was kind of fascinated with it, I don't know why. I never broke down and actually saw the movie. So, and yeah, 40-year-old movie, first time viewing. For those of you who haven't seen it before or whatever, or aren't even familiar with Heavy Metal Magazine, it was always a very eclectic mix of science fiction, of swords and sorcery, of, uh, well, we'll say uh, male fantasy. Um, sort of sci-fi erotica. Yeah. There was, yeah, like steampunk. There was like, all, some of it was straight fantasy. And looking, I did look at the lineup of some of the people that worked for it, like uh, work from HR is it Geiger or Giger? Yeah, he had worked on some of the Frank Fazetta, all the uh, Mobius, as you mentioned, and there was um, short stories in there later on as well. Yeah, I saw that Stephen King had a short story in there at some point. And the guy who had written Total Recall and the Alien 
movie had worked on some stories for uh, heavy metal. Right. I think I saw that. I think Archie Goodwin did a Aliens comic adaptation in heavy metal yeah, as well. Yeah, Walt Simonson. Did he? Walt Simonson did the art as well? Okay. Yeah, I've never I've never seen it, but I, I remember uh, reading that when I was you know, researching this movie as well. So A great soundtrack, but a bit odd. They had, you expect some of these from something called heavy metal. Sammy Hagar, Black Sabbath, uh, Blue Oyster Cult, Trust. Devo. Yeah, Devo and uh, Journey, I thought were kind of particularly strange uh, choices that made the soundtrack. Yeah, we'll have to look for those, see how those fit into the movie. And there was also a uh, a sequel that came out, Heavy Metal 2000. Um, there was also, for the longest time, developing a third film, which eventually evolved and became the Netflix show Love, Death, and Robots. I did not know that. And if you actually watch that, it, you could definitely tell because it's definitely a very mix of animation style, mix of writing, science fiction, you name it. Is it any good? I've never seen it. It's pretty good. I've uh, I haven't seen all of it. The episodes range from like you know six minutes to like eighteen minutes. Um, I've seen I think the first two series. It's actually not that bad. I would definitely recommend giving it a shot. It's still on Netflix, if I'm not mistaken. I will. All right. <laughs> all right. Without further ado, we're gonna jump right into it. We're gonna watch the movie going back to 1981, Heavy Metal. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Columbia Pictures presents Heavy Metal. A trip beyond the future to a universe you've never seen before. A universe of mystery. A universe of passionate fantasies. A universe of terrifying evil. A universe of magic. Heavy Metal. that i gotta say yeah definitely a uh, a variety of animation in st- story style in this film yeah story style well we'll get into that but yeah some were more lighthearted, comedic and some were more straightforward sci-fi stories we're gonna get into it more but uh i thought it'd be incorporate music would be incorporated more than it was in the film some of the songs are like like there's that band that's 
you know, playing the Devo yeah. song. And um, obviously there's a song called Heavy Metal, you yeah. know, by... Which is the best song on the soundtrack. Yeah. Well, Sammy Hagar. Great um, We open in space, and uh, this first opening credit segment was the, the most obvious example of the rotoscope in the film where the astronaut in the convertible <laughs> driving through outer space. Yeah. It's basically all the credits to music and... He's he kind of remind me of an old MTV uh, commercial, to be honest with you. He lands his uh, car on a planet, drives through the desert, gets to a, a a huge house in the horizon, and then when he takes his helmet off, uh, then it goes to more traditional animation, and we get a narration from the Lochnar, which is a uh, it's a giant green ball, and how he is the sum of all evil. So when we go to traditional animation, the uh, the astronaut takes his helmet off to. He says the little girl that uh, he got a surprise. Shall I say, you'll see. And then he opens the, the Lochnar, the green ball, which <laughs> immediately melts him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's immediately he just destroys him. And the girl's terrified, and the Lochnar is going to tell her some stories where he's the sum of all evil, a bunch of flashbacks of different parts and times of the galaxy that he went to. In our first story, uh, we open with a bunch of guys with very elaborate metal detectors. Definitely stylish uh, artwork and animation you'd expect from the heavy metal magazine. Uh, I would honestly describe this animation style as, um, have you ever seen the uh, the Boba Fett cartoon from the Star Wars Holiday Special? <laughs> no, actually. I don't, I've seen like stills of it. I would call it a, a style, but much more polished than that, I would say. Because uh, this is the Henry Canyon story, which is actually from a heavy metal magazine. Where, of course, the green ball also destroys one of the guys who finds it as well. Yeah, so if you haven't seen the movie, this is a very popular thing with anthology movies, a framing sequence. So yeah, they introduce this whole evil green ball of destruction in the opening segment. And then it's interwoven throughout all the different stories as a way of connecting them all. So this one is in a future New York, kind of similar to like Mega City from Judge Dredd, not quite as compact and... Not variety, but you see definitely aliens and more of the steampunk type stuff going on here. And I saw the sign on here. It was 2031. I don't know if you noticed that. <laughs> no. So, okay. This, this is what the future is going to look like. We're nine years away from that. Yeah, we're almost there. <laughs> they didn't, I couldn't tell if they had, they had like the hover cars, but I don't think they actually had the flying cars. Well, they had those like flying motorcycles in this segment. Henry Canyon, he's a, uh, this is very noir as well. You know, it's very the down on his luck cab driver who, you know, just trying to mind his own business. He gets robbed at one point, but uh, he's got this clever device that he can disintegrate his passengers if they give him any crap. Um, yeah, that was actually a pretty funny segment the first time he used that where someone tried to uh, mug him. So he just clicked on a button and it <laughs> disintegrates him. No fuss, no muss. Disintegrated him, yes. So this one's all about the story where he, uh, the scientist who discovered the Loch Nair, he's uh, the mafia of that time or after him and is, of course, beautiful buxom daughter who gets into Harry's cab. who usually avoids trouble, but there's something about this one that uh, makes him uh, get involved. Yeah, and I have to admit, I wasn't feeling good about the movie at this point. Like, I think if the whole movie had been in this style and this was written like this, I think I might have bailed on it. Like this, this whole assignment was, I don't know. I just felt kind of juvenile and <laughs> we'll get, I guess, I don't know how much we'll talk about it, but forcing in the, the nudity and the sex scene. If you're a child of the eighties, it was the decade of uh, nudity for no reason put into your film. Yeah. And, and, this, and this even the a, animation, it creeps in. <laughs> and this is an R rated movie, right? It's supposed to be like more adult science fiction, but I don't know the the level of writing for some of the sex related stuff just seemed very like it was aimed at like a fourteen year old fifteen year old teenage boy. I mean, yeah, you're gonna find a theme of uh, <laughs> nudity crammed in here when it uh, not necessarily needed. Yes, for no reason like women with exaggerated breasts just <laughs> go topless. So uh, he ends up, ends up hooking up with her in his hotel room, which you, of course, get the gratuitous shot. At least this one, you have, well, spoiler alert, you get, she's trying to work this guy to help her get the, the Lochner. So you kind of got, she's kind of playing the guy. At least there's that in this particular storyline. They don't all have that benefit. Yeah, which I guess does make it sort of like a sci-fi version of 
an old detective story, you know, where the evil woman, you know, is trying to rope him in. So. And uh, during their sex, he says, uh, I'm, uh, I'm giving this broad the stars and stripes forever. <sighs> in no comment, yeah. <laughs> Um, you find out later she leaves, but the cops and the mafia, everyone's trying to get a hold of her, so this thing must be uh, valuable. He goes back to his cab, can't decide if he's going to go back to his normal life. I don't know if you saw this. In the background, there was a poster for uh, Jaws 7. I didn't catch that, actually. So both Back to the Future and Heavy Metal got it wrong. You know that uh, two, Here we are in 2022. We still only have four Jaws movies. What was it, Jaws 9 in... Uh, in Back to the Future 2? I don't know. I'm sure there are like, listeners that are screaming, of course it was Jaws 12 or whatever. <laughs> but no, I don't remember that. But yes, obviously it was. Apparently Jaws is going on. And I hear the shark still looks fake. <laughs> they mentioned the currency, chrono dollars, which you never find out really what that is. I love science fiction where they always invent currency and it's always got some lame name that's a, supposed to mean something, but it always sounds like they just whipped it up at the last minute. And finally... He hooks up with her. They they agree to make a split on the money. They give the gangster the Lochnar, which big surprise when he opens it. You know what happens? Yep, kills him, disintegrate. <laughs> they never really the Lochnar shows up in every story, and there's never really a clear idea of what this thing is or what it actually. It seems to be able to do whatever it needs to for the particular story they're in. Right. It's like an, it's evil. It's a force of destruction. But yeah, in a lot of the stories, it just instantly just disintegrates people but then not exactly the use that way in other stories and i gotta say percy Rodriguez, the late percy rodriguez who does the voice of lochner great voice is really perfect for narration yep anyway long story short the whole story they get the money they agreed to a 50 50 split but you find out she's been playing them the whole time and she's gonna keep the chrono dollars for herself he even gives her the opportunity says you sure you want to do this and she says yes and bam he uses his little uh nifty device and disintegrates her and gets i quote one hell of a tip yeah that story kind of ended abruptly but i mean i know they set up for that with the disintegrating yeah early but so what do you think uh as a segment in a whole i like the the noir aspect of it even though a lot of the story elements uh felt a little bit familiar yeah we'll just talk about it later but it wasn't my favorite i'll just say that. so we go back to the little girl in the lochner he says that he chooses her because she presents powers she doesn't even understand uh, and then we go to the story of Den, and uh, it's a little kid, Den. He's not, he's a teenager, but he just looks, he's kind of nerdy and small. Uh, he finds the Loch Ness buried in the woods, and he is, uh, this is the first obvious example of John Candy who plays uh, Den at this point. Right. I actually missed him as the uh, death sergeant in the first story, but you cannot pick up on the fact that he's doing the main voice in this one. No, absolutely. The late, great John Candy. He doesn't experiment. At the same time, he's got the Lochnar, which uh, blasts the bolt of electricity. It sends him into the distant future, where he lands on an alien planet. Now he's jacked, bald, and purple. Yeah, he's transforming this super jacked, uh, yeah, purple guy. Get no real explanation. It just happens. Sort of just go with it, I guess. <laughs> he one point puts a loincloth on and says, I quote, I'm not going to stand here with my dork hanging out. <laughs> yeah. And um, this is this is a classic. Uh, it's almost this is more it seems like a Conan story with a little bit of side on a, on a on another planet almost because it really breaks down to the big warrior on a quest with a lot of <laughs> a lot of naked women with uh, <laughs> huge jugs. Yeah, there's not a lot of like hard, serious science fiction based stuff in this movie. A lot of it is more of this fantasy stuff. Yeah, basically like. Um, Conan in outer space or um, John Carter of Mars type stuff, you know, with, you know, topless women and a lot of sword and sorcery type stuff. Um, <laughs> he stumbles across a sacrifice where, of course, the, the sacrifice and the priestess are both naked with huge tits. Yeah, again, <laughs> this story also does seem to be pandering to like, and maybe this is about who is reading Heavy Metal Magazine, but I mean, pandering to like a teenage boy audience where the little kid who becomes super strong and then, you know, gets to have, you know, sex with women and slay all these other creatures and whatnot. Yeah, this was, um, I'd seen this before, but it'd been a while. I didn't remember it being so, uh, so much nudity as there was when rewatching it this time. When, uh, of course, when he saves her and she says that, uh, 
If any uh, part of me pleases your senses, I will give it willingly. Which, in the most ridiculous thing, the line in the movie, which I assume they knew how much flack they were going to get, he, he comments on how beautiful her eyes are. Okay. Yeah. I'm not trying to be cynical or misogynistic, but this is an 18-year-old kid who's never gotten laid before, and he's now hanging out with this naked, beautiful chick, and eyes are the first thing he's noticing, huh? So um, he gets kidnapped by uh, the evil queens men who are kind of like humanoid gorilla-type things. They recruit him to steal the Loch Nair. No, um, actually, no, this is... He gets... I apologize. I jumped ahead. Not the queen. This bizarre, weird effeminate type leader guy <laughs> oh right right yeah he's like the snooty effeminate aristocrat that rules this race of human hybrid animal <laughs> right yeah that, yeah he wants her to he's encased the the naked chick in glass and he wants uh her to him to steal the lock now and he'll let her go yeah i mean as much as i love john candy like he was a highlight like I had mixed feelings about the first story. I think this is probably the the worst story in the in the movie. Yeah, it gets kind of convoluted. Yeah, there's there's yeah that snooty bad guy. There's the woman that he first meets. I think Karen was her name. Right, right, right. And sacrifices and battles and so they go to the evil queen's lair to uh, try and get the Loch Ness, and they split up at one point and. A great moment where he's in a dark room. He can't find where he's going. And the surprise, he accidentally grabs a big bear of tits. It's the queen who, of course, naked in a throne room with a bunch of troops. I don't know why, but it just, just because, I guess. Just imagine, it, oh, we, I don't know how deep we want to get into this, but imagine if you're like, well, it's a rated R movie, so I don't, I don't know who how young someone would be. But imagine if you're like a 12-year-old a boy who's watching this. Is this going to color your perception? Is this what you think the rest of your adult life? Oh, th- this is what breasts look like. They're giant inflated. The thing is, it's kind of feels like an adolescent fantasy, but it's rated R. No adolescent's actually seeing this. It's only grown men who have seen this. Right. That's This was all in my head watching it, like trying to figure out. The intended audience, I guess, is... It's unclear to me, but um, so instead of killing him, though, uh, he of course hooks up with her. We're in a baffling moment that we find out the planet is called Neverwhere, and uh, she says afterwards that if uh, if he could bring hit the pleasure to the planet that he brought her body, this planet will have peace. That is a big leap in logic, if you want my. Uh, <laughs> People yeah. say crazy stuff during lovemaking. I guess. <laughs> I suppose, yeah. So it ends up with a big fight between the weirdo guy and the, the queen, which made me laugh out loud at one point where he's like, give me the lock now, you stupid bitch. Yeah, I was surprised how <laughs> out of the blue, yeah, there would just be like <laughs> some gratuitous swearing as well, which uh, I guess the more I think about it, maybe because this was a one of the you know early rated R animated movies, they just felt like, let's see what we can get away with, you know? We can do whatever we want. So, yeah, they threw in stuff like that. Yeah, because yeah, there's more nudity and violence than actual swearing in this movie. Yeah, but that one kind of <laughs> caught me off guard. I- and they get blown up by a lightning bolt in the Loch Nair combo that just blows them both up. And Den decides he's going to stay here, but not get the Loch Nair. He's just going to enjoy his life on this planet. He's nobody on Earth, but he's somebody here. Right. And uh, the Loch Nair even comments that, even though some people can resist him, his evil will preside. And then uh, our next story, uh, we go to a space station and it's the trial of Captain Stern. And I got to say, Captain Stern looks awesome. He looks exactly like, uh, if you ever read the old Normal Man comic books, he looks exactly like Captain Everything. Yes, <laughs> that's what I thought too. Which, uh, yeah, that's uh, what, Jim Valentino? Yep. Yeah. It, he it, looks identical to Captain Everything. He looks like... Yeah, like a parody of like heroic characters like Captain Kirk and Superman rolled into one, you know, like giant chin, you know, <laughs> you know, big barrel chest, you know, cocky look on his face. Uh, they, they read the, the charges against him, which is ridiculous. Everything from rape, murder, piracy, and one moving violation. One moving violation, right. 
His lawyer's trying to get him to uh, cop a pee, but I should say cop a plea. Cop a plea. <laughs> but he, he's, got a, he's got an angle. All right, so this one was, I enjoyed the humor in this segment more. Like, I thought this was just straight up, mostly just straight up comedic, you know? He had an angle to get out of this, and they kept building up to what his angle is. So to me, this was, I enjoyed the humor of this segment more. Um, and that's Joe Flaherty, who's the lawyer in that one. He was uh, the father from Priests and Geeks, but also from SCTV. Uh, he's also the uh, the Happy Gilmore guy. You, yes, he's in you, Happy Gilmore, yes. You will miss this shot, you jackass. Yeah, that's him. <laughs> um, then uh, this I also liked. Um, this is my second favorite um, animation style of the movie. My, uh, my favorite comes later on, but I liked the... This is the more cartoony type animation, I thought, but it was like clean. It didn't look sloppy or, or rushed. It was like a nice, clean, more traditional cartoony animation. Yeah. This uh, scrawny geek is his star witness. They put him on the stand. Um, he's got the Lochnar, but it's like smaller now. It's, a, it's like a marble, and it causes him, well, the implication seems to be that it causes him to have mood swings on the witness stand. But later on, I'm not sure if uh, if that's the plan all along or if it was the Lochner. It sure seems like it was the plan all along. At least, yeah, at the time, though, it just looks like he's swinging back and forth or it's making him tell the truth or he, he can't control what he's saying. But he's supposed to be Captain Stern's uh, star witness. So first he'll say uh, something great about him. But then he buries him by essentially probably telling the truth about him. <laughs> uh, he brings up the preschooling prostitution ring. Right, right. At the time, he sold dope disguised as a nun. <laughs> so he ends up like turning basically into the Hulk, where like he grows into this giant hulking monster. His clothes rip. He causes havoc in the courtroom, chasing Captain Stern throughout the space station. Uh, he finally corners him in a thing, but then you realize it was all an act, and he pays him the 35,000 Zulaks. Right, right. Another great uh, space currency. Like, why couldn't it just be dollars? <laughs> I don't know. Especially it's, the episode or the segments that take place on Earth, you yeah. know? <laughs> like, why wouldn't those just be dollars? But anyway. You find out it was all a double cross. He opens an airlock that <laughs> this dude falls to his death with the, the Lochnar. So they were in cahoots, yeah. but he's chasing him through this space station, wrecking it left, right, and center. I guess to give him a good, it's a good cover story. Yeah, to make it look like a... This guy was psychotic, and he saved the day. But yeah, then Captain Stern, is that his name? Yes. Turns on him and dumps him into and I swore, deep space. The last time I saw this, I swore there was a, like another little bit where he goes back to the trial, and they, they like absolve him of all the, of the charges for saving the day. I swore that happened, but it didn't happen in this. Maybe, maybe I'm remembering it wrong, or maybe there's a deleted scene I'm remembering. Maybe that's a... Yeah. Swore that happened. Maybe that's a deleted scene. That would kind of make sense, but it might interrupt the flow of the story of the evil green ball. So that maybe that's why they would have cut it. Now we go to the story B-17, where obviously there's a B-17 bomber, where this is another clear example of a rotoscope. They rotoscope the B-17. Yeah, this segment probably has the most rotoscoping, particularly yeah, the plane and a lot of the um, other vehicles in this. It's different. I really like the, it really looked like pencil animation almost going mixed with the rotoscope. Yeah. I enjoyed the drawing style of this one and the tone of it. Like this was more, this was almost like a, like a very small, a very, because it's pretty uh, yeah, short. It's a short segment. But like a brief little uh, sci-fi horror story almost. Yeah. It's very similar to uh, EC Comics where uh, all the guy, all the pilots that, and the gunners who've been killed in the B-17, the Lochnar brings them back to life as zombies. Right, which is basically we just described the whole story. Yes, that's pretty much all there is to it. So uh, this, this is, is more, one of the this is more of a, a feast for the eyes. Yeah, you have to see this one because that's basically the story. The B seventeen gets infected by the what is it green ball thing called Vokdar, <laughs> right? And uh, it kills them, turns to zombies, and crashes, and they're all closing in on him at the end. Yeah, but in the end, he parachutes on the lands on an island full of crash ships. Right. With all zombies. Right, yeah. So this is definitely, uh, this is more style than story in this one, but pretty enjoyable. So then we, um, 
we switched to our next segment at the Pentagon. And I got to say, uh, this was the most baffling of all of the segments, this, this particular story. Yeah. I don't know what the hell was going on. So beautiful and so dangerous was the name of this yes. one. And yeah. And this is, well, the view. <laughs> the not mince words, stupid. The story is a little all over the place, if that's what you're <laughs> referring to. Uh, the guy's going into the Pentagon. He's swamped by reporters because there's all these reports of green radiation and mutations. There's, in the war room, they're all talking about how it's, it's an anomaly. It's nothing to do with outer space or anything. But then right then, a giant ship is hovering over the Pentagon, um, right when he's saying how there's no aliens. I do think that this story is going to be hard for us to put in the word. Like... The rest of it, it's the all. There are little segments and there are individual stories, and they work in their own context. But th- yeah, this story, there's a lot going on. I it guess. doesn't go anywhere. No, not really. So the ship causes the guy who is talking about how there's no aliens. He goes nuts and attacks, of course, the secretary with the huge knockers. I knew that character was going to be part of the story too, because it was a female with oversized breasts so i'm like oh she's she's obviously going to get more involved in this story so, uh while attacking her they both get sucked up into this giant spaceship uh where there's a little robot and then two aliens one of the aliens is zeke who is harold ramus yes this story again is chock full of the sctv actors yeah, john candy's the robot john candy's a robot yeah harold ramus is one of the aliens he might have done a second voice in it actually probably uh, I think Eugene Levy does a voice of one of the minor characters, too. We found out that that guy in the Pentagon was a robot that had malfunctioned, which I don't know, a robot that malfunctioned, so he gets horny and tries to attack a female human. Well, actually, in the context of the story, later on, it makes sense, but at the time, I thought that was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because then the little robot spends the rest of the episode hitting on the secretary with the big knockers. Her great excuses of how uh, she's got her dry cleaning done, uh, she's got dinner at her parents, and on Wednesdays, her gynecologist meeting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, he and her go wandering off on the ship. Oh, wait, and doesn't the robot want to marry her at one point? Or is that- yeah, that comes up, but yes, he does want to marry her. Um, she only marry him if he's Jewish. Right. Well, they had to have a Jewish ceremony or... <laughs> Right. When they leave in this bizarre scene, the aliens get this like vacuum cleaner and they spray coke everywhere. And then the both of them snort it up and get high. I have to I was laughing pretty hard through this. I'm not really sure why, but I don't know. Maybe it's cuz, you know, like late 70s, early 80s, you know, drug use was, you know, play for laughs and sci-fi comedy type stuff but this was so over the top with the yeah just a vacuum machine that like sprayed out like the alien version of cocaine yeah, they all over this room huge noses so they all snorted up and really weird yep and then we go to this kind of psychedelic outer space thing with the ships like in this nebula or whatever with asteroids and all these crash ships and i don't know if you noticed the enterprise was one of the crash ships Yep, I did catch that. The, the, the old rig. Voyager satellite was one too, but I'm not positive. So then we go back, and the robot and the Earth woman are in bed, and of course she's butt ass naked. And uh, said, <laughs> now it's turning into a basic porno movie where she says how she feels guilty because she already has a boyfriend. <laughs> and the robot says, uh, when Earth women who experience sexual ecstasy with mechanical assistance always feel guilty that's a thing i don't know if you know that yeah that just felt like that was that line that was felt out of nowhere yeah i don't know maybe the less said about this is the less trying to examine our uh, better female uh listeners i want to know if you uh, feel guilty after sexual ecstasy with mechanical assistance (laughs) only my earth women listeners though none of Women that aren't from Earth. Yeah, that's what she, he wants to marry her. She doesn't want to because uh, she might come home one day and he'll be screwing the toaster. <laughs> right, right. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it ends with them going to this giant, awesome-looking space station where he, not sure if he can land the ship because he's so stoned. Right. 
this is the I'm gonna never remember this, but this is the green little ball. It showed up at the beginning at the Pentagon, and then it sort of never really was a factor again in this. Oh wait, her pendant she was wearing had the Lochnar on it. Right, she had like a brooch on her shirt. Yeah, so I think made the robot go crazy and horny and trying to attack her. All right, yeah. So the, it was a bit more shoehorned into this story, but th- that story was just went nowhere. Stupid. <laughs> Yeah. I can't deny it made me laugh, but not entirely for probably the reasons they intended. Yeah, I enjoyed the two wacky aliens, the the drug snorting aliens there with Hammeramus and that part was kind of amusing, but yeah, overall this was kind of an odd one. So uh we go back and to the little girl in the Lochnar says that uh he chose her because she could destroy him in one day. So uh he's gonna show her when his evil destroyed her race. And then we get to the most iconic story of heavy metal, the story of Tarna, which everybody who, anybody who knows anything about heavy metal pictures this girl when they think of heavy metal. Right. She's on the cover art yeah. uh, for the poster in the, in the DVD and VHS. And this is the longest story. Yeah. And to me, this by far was the best segment. The animation, the, the story, the music, this was really the, the best story in the, of the movie. Yeah, this almost could have been like if they were going to use one story for a movie, made a full length movie, they could have used this story and fleshed it out. And the animation, yeah, there's a lot of, like this combination. There's like good map paintings, you know, yep. very colorful backgrounds. Yeah, there's great landscape shots in this when she's riding her bird, where it's really like beautiful animation. Doesn't look like just the move, same moving background over and over again. Uh, the whole story, she's on this uh, desert planet. The Lochnar is huge in this volcano, which engulfs a bunch of the la- the natives, uh, turning them into mutants. My favorite part of this is like when they emerge from it as mutants. Suddenly, the main villain's wearing a helmet that he wasn't wearing when they got engulfed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then he just arises and just screams, declares death to all who oppose us. Right. Well, turned him evil. Yes, it did. <laughs> they attack a city. The Tarnakians are usually what help them, but they think they're all extinct. Uh, but there's a one left that they know about, which is Tarna. Did you notice that the little kid that was with them, the bizarre design choice, this kid is barefoot, wearing like short shorts, bald, and a purple bow tie. Yeah, yeah. What the hell was going on with that design? <laughs> yeah, that was interesting. But they, they called her. You get this really long shot of her, which beautifully animated where she's in this like shrine with this giant statue of a woman holding a uh, sword a little gratuitous because uh, she's but naked for the entire segment yeah i mean it was gratuitous but at least this like this whole segment just had a different tone to it it didn't have like the jokiness to it yeah, it's, and then it's the only time the nudity didn't seem as juvenile as the rest of the film right and they even and we haven't talked much about the music but in addition to all the like hard rock and heavy metal in this, it had like a traditional score, and like this scene had like sort of a romantic or erotica type music playing yeah, in the background uh, when she's getting suited up in her. Elmer Bernstein did the uh, score. Yeah, who um, has done a lot of uh, or Ghostbusters. <laughs> yeah, but he also did like a lot of like big sweeping epics like the Ten Commandments and the Great Escape and all these great movies from the. Uh, 50s through 70s i was impressed by yeah that scene i mean despite the nudity it's beautifully animated the music it's great it's it's really a well done scene yeah and this was they used rotoscope for this character i read yeah that's what it looks like anyway but it's much more cleaner animation it doesn't look as it looks more like animation than the rest of it did she goes to the city where it's been destroyed tonal carnage uh so she goes to a uh Another city to, where she tracks some of the mutants down to a bar trying to accost her, which she, in an awesome, awesomely animated segment, like slices their heads off two at once, actually. <laughs> yeah, with that sword, just <laughs> Queen God decapitates them all. But then later on, her and her bird get captured by the, the, the mutant who's he's got the robot arm and that awesome helmet. Yep. She, they get her naked again, of course, and whip her. But this part was a little weird. They leave her in like this giant pit. And they were going to kill her bird, but the bird comes and saves the day. Uh, he gets shot in the process. Uh, and then the whole thing ends in a uh, 
a big duel between her and the main bad guy, her with her sword and him where his uh, hand becomes like a giant buzzsaw. Yeah, yeah. This was this was a pretty cool fight scene, and this was the undoing of the villain, though, because he wanted to kill the last um, of this race. Tarnakian. Tarnakian, right? Yeah. So he wanted to slay her himself, and I mean, he did have the like buzzsaw hand, so obviously he yeah. thought he had the advantage. He did at one point, but the bird who you thought was dead... And a last-minute grass grabbed him by the foot. Right. The bird had been stabbed, but comes to the rescue, basically uh, delaying the villain just enough so she can get. She, she can, can actually use his own weapon and cut him in the throat, and then she punches him full on the face, like destroying his face. <laughs> right. We haven't talked much about the violence, but uh, th- there is definitely uh, some bloody scenes, albeit green blood with yes. a lot of the aliens. But well, Overall, like the den segment had a lot of violence in the fight scene, a lot of yeah. blood. The, the zombies were pretty gross looking. This one, yeah, there's uh, it's green blood, but she's uh, she cut the head off. She sliced this guy with her own uh, buzzsaw. She punches him in the face so hard that her fist is like covered in green blood. Yep. Uh, she saves the day. She gets on a bird for one last ride as they go towards the volcano with a Larnac. Tries to warn him off that he can't destroy, she can't destroy him. But in this another awesomely animated scene, she holds up her sword, which is shot by magic lightning, shot into the Larnac, which we jump to the, the framing sequence where the Larnac's blowing up and the girl runs out of the room. And this was actually, they blow up the house, but this was actually uh, the only non-animated shot in the entire uh, film. The house blows up and it's actually real. Yeah, it looks like... A model or something. Yeah. And the reason being is that apparently they... Uh, I don't know if it was Columbia, but they upped the schedule release of the movie. So they ran out of time to ag- animate that final segment. So they actually just built the model and blew it up. Oh, well, that makes sense. I kind of like it, though. It gives it a different look to that explosion. Yeah, so that's why... That's, that's the only completely non-animated thing that appeared in this film. And then we get this uh, beautiful little wrap-up story where uh, the little girl finds the flying bird and it's revealed she is a young Tarna and a line about how the span of time transfers across the universe to a new Tarnakian. And then, boom, we hit the end credits. Yeah. I guess even though there will always be an evil, you know, that green evil ball. The Loch there also always be a force for good like Tarna. Yeah, and that ended heavy metal, and we went out to heavy metal music. Well, there you have it. I hope you watched it and enjoyed it. Uh, We've definitely never talked about anything like this on the multiverse before, I'll say that. Yeah, this is, (laughs) yeah, different in tone than anything you've covered, and uh, obviously since it's R-rated, there's uh, content that's probably different than anything from your other episodes we're gonna break it all down but uh we're gonna start off by doing our ranking we're going over to the spectrometer anyone new to the show every week we rank what we saw in the spectrometer zero spectros being absolute garbage four spectros being perfection mark how many spectros are you gonna give heavy metal Oh, shoot. I actually forgot about this part of the show that I was going to have to rate this. Uh, I guess if you're going to twist my arm, I guess feeling generous, I'll give it three. Because I feel like a two and a half is like perhaps a bad rating. Two definitely is. So I I would give this kind of a mild recommendation. I mean, it's worth watching. It's interesting. I'll give it a three. Kind of torn on this one. I'm going to go three, but... I'm basing it more on my enjoyment of it a little bit more than if I went just on how I, the quality of the film, I might go a little lower. I liked it a little bit of combo of the nostalgic factor and I loved a lot of it. I, I think it's a little clunky. The narrative doesn't always hold together well. And some of the segments, like almost all anthology films are better than others. You changed my mind. It's going to be a two. <laughs> no, just kidding. I'm going to stick with my three, but yeah, the, the story. I'm, I'm going three as well. <laughs> At times, the story the story's a little clunky. Animation, it's a 40-year-old movie, so I, I give it some leeway for any flaws in animation. But overall, I enjoyed it, I think. Yeah, I'd say the, the Captain Stern and uh, the Tarna segments, I think, are easily the best segments of the whole thing. Yeah, and that, that little B-17. B-17 is segment, excellent, yeah. Enjoyable. Den is a little... 
I thought the animation of that was the sloppiest of the bunch. It seemed a little uh, corny. It was a little bit more of a traditional story, and I thought the animation was the sloppiest in that one and the most juvenile. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And that one with the the Pentagon and the the robots and that was just. <laughs> I guess that's the segment where they assumed you'd roll the joint and uh, you weren't really. Bad. Yeah, they just because that just <laughs> it's just bad shit there's just a lot of stuff thrown at the screen there yeah it doesn't all connect too well but what did you think did you like heavy metal you could have liked it more than us you could have liked it less if you did that's great we can't take that away from you we want to hear from your opinion if you go to my social media and let me know you can find me on twitter at matt spectro while you're there give me a follow and you can find me on facebook as matt spectro through the multiverse follow and like my page and give me your comments as well Probably not the right episode to ask if a child of today saw this. Isn't that what you usually ask? Yeah, I usually ask if a child in 2022 came across heavy metal. What do you think? I definitely wouldn't recommend this for children, period. Uh, preteen is probably going to love it. Uh, but actually, well, no, this is a different era. The internet wasn't a thing. We didn't all have smartphones. Uh, we were, I don't want to use the word repressed, but as uh, adolescent boys in this time period, uh, we didn't have this access to this type of material as much as a kid would now i would definitely recommend this for a 14 or 15 year old of the 1980s if you went back in time i wish i had seen it at the time well at least on home video but it wasn't available right yeah i wish i had seen it as i didn't see it until the late 90s when it finally got released on vhs one thing i want to point out which i liked about it for the most part, unlike modern adult animation, it didn't resort to toilet humor every uh, three seconds, which is pretty much the state of modern adult animation. Other than some of the, you know, the gratuity and some of those drug references, not it wasn't loaded from from toilet humor. Yeah, that's true for the most part. And um, again, I, I really and the music is good. I mean, there is that good score, yeah, the score and the music, great. And I love there it. is some good hard rock in there. And uh, Devo. <laughs> exactly. But like I said, uh, what do you think? Give us your thoughts. I always want to hear feedback. Uh, should we at one point come back and do Heavy Metal 2000? Well, that's what I was going to say at the end. Of the, that was in my head for the end of the episode. I'll see you in three months when I come back for Heavy Metal 2000. I've never seen that e myself either. So I did see that. I remember it being terrible, but it's been over a decade since I saw it. So. Uh, I'm willing to give it a second chance. All right. It's a possibility. We'll float it out there. Uh, I always want to hear from you, Mark. I want to thank you for joining us. I uh, hope you'll always come back again. Yeah, I had a good time. I, I always enjoy getting together with you, and it was fun watching this movie for the first time. Um, and if you're out there, if you could uh, smash the subscribe button and uh, give me a five-star review, I really appreciate it. And uh, like I said, I always uh, want to hear from you, give feedback, input. Always want to hear from you. Until next time, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you again next episode. Excelsior!